Lord, we agree with those prayers and do desire that you uh, continue to sustain purchasers in every way and that you would, in fact, bless them mightily and they didn't expect or even consider buying while they were there, but apparently you have a long-range plan for them, at least a longer, longer range than maybe they even envisioned, but continue to pray for their protection as well, as things are very dangerous there, that they would sense and know that your hand, well, I think they know that your hand is on them, but they would be protected in a way that would allow them to continue to minister for as long as you desire. We continue to also pray for the ministry that they have and the people that they have influence long-term as well as they're training people. Praise you for that ministry. This morning we desire to also think not only short-range but long-range as well, how we might have an impact on the world which we live in and how this passage may enable us and help us and strengthen us to be able to reach people that don't know you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning what I want to look at is chapter 8, 12 through 17. We won't get too far into that. The outline reflects those verses there. Paul is in the very important section of the not only the book of Romans, but basically all of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. In this passage, we have insight into how to live the Christian life. And I've been stressing that most believers, particularly, don't have a clue. Romans 8 is not easy, but it's not as hard as a lot of other passages. But I think it is clear enough that believers ought to have insight into how to live the Christian life. So it's more than just an intellectual issue at stake. It's probably more of a spiritual and a depravity issue that we have difficulty living the Christian life. So we've seen lots of principles, and I've been emphasizing the people that was were the original recipients, or they were like any other people in any other time frame, and it's inspired, and therefore it has application to us in the 21st century as well. And we walked right around that monument, you might say, or that temple, and some of you didn't notice it because it was raining. (laughs) Don't remember it? Yeah, looking at our feet more. (laughs) (laughs) Holding the umbrella in one hand and the cane in the other. (laughs) But the temple dates back before the first century, so Paul would have seen it, and people that he ministered would have as well. Colosseum wasn't built, but... We're going to get into a section on suffering, and many of the believers in the first century in Rome died on that spot right there. Many of them were martyred. The date for completion of it, somewhere around 79, I believe, somewhere in that time frame. So first century, so it was under construction in the first century when Paul would have ministered. Paul would have seen that construction. And you guys don't remember when I took this photograph, you don't? <laughs> no, I, mean, I was going to say, where did you sneak your drone in your backpack? Yeah. And we're looking at, obviously, theological concepts. Paul is dealing with theology, writing to believers. 
Some think that he's writing, writing to the unbeliever to tell them how to come into a saving relationship and then how to live after that, but I don't think that's the case because of the, the words and the grammar and everything, the content that Paul is writing. He's writing to believers. In fact, that's clear from the introduction. So that believers have a foundation and a grounding to know the essence of the gospel. In fact, what the Bible teaches concerning how to come into a saving relationship. So we'll know the theology, if you will, all of the ins and outs so that we may may be better equipped. So also sanctification. These are his words. That's why I use them. Justification is the translation of Paul's word. Sanctification, you see that at the end of chapter 6, where he's starting to transition into this doctrine. But the essence of it is in chapter 6 through 8. We've looked at principles of sanctification, the essence of it. I'm going to review a little bit of that because it's so important. In 7, devotes how we kind of get off track or the problems that we can encounter as we are trying to live the Christian life. And that leads into the power that is available in chapter 8 that we've been looking at the last several weeks. So in the outline, verses 1 through 11, there's power over the sinful flesh. Chapter 7 is the sinful flesh and how that does not sanctify, how that is not the means. In other words, willpower is not going to do it. The law is not going to do it. That's the essence of chapter 7. We need power, and the emphasis of chapter 8, a power outside of ourselves. We've seen the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit last time as the key here. So, first four verses, there's freedom from condemnation. That condemnation is present tense condemnation. It's not eternal and future in Romans 8. It includes that, but he's talking about sanctification in chapter 8. So he's dealing with the here and now. And after chapter 7, if you're frustrated in the Christian life, you do sense guilt and you do sense condemnation. So he starts off to remind that the cross dealt with not only eternity, but he dealt with sin in the present as well. And there's no condemnation. So there's freedom from it. Then he contrasts the flesh and the spirit, basically contrasting chapter 7 with the alternative that he's developing in chapter 8. We've seen all of those verses. Last time we looked at the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, 9 through 10, and that's essentially the key. In fact, I've got a little chart to kind of help us track chapter 8 that I'll get to in a moment. And we touched on verse 11, but didn't quite complete it, and it's still, I put it in that same paragraph. So we'll look at verse 11 and then, transition into the next paragraph. So just to remind you, kind of the a little review here in chart form. You guys tell me that you like some of these charts. Well, here's another one. Pretty simple, kind of a flow chart, you might say. One thing leading to another. In fact, all of the book of Romans is kind of structured this way. Paul lays out a doctrine that leads to another aspect of this broader doctrine That leads to something else. That leads to something else. And we've been seeing this throughout. In fact, you can outline the book of Romans kind of sequentially that way. In fact, I'm going to give you some transitions in a moment. So verse 1 starts off, no condemnation. 
and he's dealing with the believer. And we developed that in some detail from verse 8. I won't review all of that. The solution is an alternative to the flesh. He describes it as the law of the spirit of life in verse 2. And then he kind of expands upon it in verse 3 there. We need something to counteract another law. There seems to be, well, there is a law of sin and death because of Adam's sin going all the way back to chapter 5. All of his descendants are basically under a law, just like a physical law. There's a spiritual law, the law of sin and death. So he contrasts that with the law of the spirit of life. That law of sin and death, we are not capable of overcoming. I use the illustration of gravity. We can't overcome gravity, but you can overcome it with forces that counteract it. And the counteracting law is the law of the spirit of life. And he's going to expand upon that. And when we're living according to the spirit, then in fact, instead of trying to fulfill the law, the spirit fulfills the law in us. That's verse 4. So see how this is kind of flowing and, and leading. And then he moves from there, what we looked at last week, 9 through 10. Now he 5 through 8, he's continuing to bring this contrast out and basically re-emphasizing what we looked at in chapter 7. And then 9 through 10, the law is fulfilled, victory over sin is accomplished by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what we spent our time looking at last, last time. And that flows into kind of a, you might even say, a little bit of a transitional, if not a concluding verse to this paragraph at least, So he starts off with a conditional clause, but if, and it's not a question, it's more, you could even say, since, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, he's just discussed that, and he said, if you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, you are a believer, and you have the capability or you have the resource to be able to draw upon that to live the Christian life. So if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and if he doesn't, then then you have to go back to chapters 3, 4, and 5 to deal with justification. But he's just reminding them, in fact, he's saying, since you do, of him who raised Jesus from the dead, now he's moving into another resource that we have, In fact, he's defining and making clearer what we have available to us in terms of this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to talk a little bit here concerning resurrection in verse 11. And the point he's making here, if we have the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, then that brings into play a power or a resurrection power that uh, accomplished the resurrection. And using kind of a slide of an empty tomb here, resurrection, what he's going to say, basically in this passage, this is the ultimate answer to the issue that he raised in chapter 7. Now, it's going to flow into that, but ultimately resurrection is the ultimate solution to the cry that, 
we read in chapter 7, verse 20, 24, wretched man that I am, then he looks not, is there a method, is there a plan, is there some key? No, it's the key is a person. The cry is, who will set me free from this body or the, the body of this death? And the ultimate answer is, ultimate deliverance is found in resurrection. But that's future. And in this context, there's resurrection power available. And that's the point of the verse here. So the ultimate answer of 724, and the point he's making here is, in fact, this is something of a Trinitarian passage. In fact, I didn't bring this out, but the last passage, we see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So also here in in this little phrase here, did you notice the phrase? Let me go back to it just to remind you. But if the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Him, who's Him? No. The Father who raised, who? Jesus from the dead. Little phrase, you have the whole Trinity right there. Now, if you go back, you'll see the Trinity again in verses 9, 9 and 10. In fact, I only, well, we stress the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the indwelling presence of Christ as well, verse 10. Then we went outside of the passage and we spoke of the indwelling presence of the Father as well. So, all of these are Trinitarian. In fact, we'll talk a little bit about that again. But the stress here is the Father raised Christ, and there's other passages that indicate the same thing, Acts 2.24. In fact, there's many in the book of Acts that attribute the Father to raising Christ from the dead. Another key passage, 1 Corinthians 6.14. In fact, you could say... The Trinity was involved, and there's a passage in John 10 where Jesus himself claims that no one takes his life. In other words, his death was unique. He was not killed on the cross, if you will. He died of crucifixion, but his death was a voluntary death. He gave up his spirit, unique from all other humans, if you will, Christ and his humanity. And what else does he say there? And I also am able to what? Take it up. So Jesus has the power to raise himself. The stress, however, of this passage and many others is that the Father is the one that raises the Son. And that's what's stated in uh, verse 11 here. So another point that's not brought out here but implied is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 where he states that Christ is the first fruits. His resurrection is the prototype, you might say, is the example of many more that are going to come, the forerunner to others, you could say. And in this passage, he's implying that uh, there's going to be an ultimate resurrection of us as well. Now, the focus is now in terms of the Christian walk, but... Ultimately, we anticipate total release from these the, the body of sin, as, as Paul describes it, or the flesh, as he also describes in chapter 7. Christ is the first fruits. Now, for the sake of time, we won't look those up, but you, some of you were jotting them down. Did you get, do you have, which one do you have? You have one of them, right? Yes. 
Actually, no, I, I would do the verse on my own. Ah, okay. That has to do with the power. Basically, Paul is talking about resurrection and power. In this context. Right, in this context. So in Ephesians, um, he says in his prayer um, that you you would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Yes. And seated him at the right Yeah, place. that would be another one that you could add here. Exactly. When he raised him from the dead, referring to the Father. Right. Good. So, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and if you're a believer, he does dwell in you. We emphasized that last time. Again, he, who's that? Who's the he? God. The Father, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will also, and here's the point, will also give life to your mortal bodies. Now, in this context, mortal bodies, obviously, is a reference to our physical being that includes the flesh, the old nature. Now, he's not going to revive the old nature, but he's going to give and replace it with life. And we've already seen that that's the struggle. The struggle is with the new nature that has resurrection power there residing, or available at least, and the flesh that is our habit, our tendency, and our default mode. That's the battle. We've already seen lots of that. But the point he's making here, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life. And the point of the passage is in order to be able to overcome the law of sin and death. This is the outworking of the law of the spirit of life. It's via power, resurrection power that is available. And when he says also give life, he's talking about resurrection life. Life that is supernatural. Life that is similar to what happened when God raised Jesus. That's the point. And the Greek word for life here is what? Zoe. We'll give life. In fact, it's the verbal form. We'll give life to your mortal bodies, our physical makeup, our external visible personhood, if you will. And what we can look at is there's life now as I've been stressing, and in this context, it's life to be able to be sanctified. It's in the sanctification portion. Life available. This is the force, if you will. I gave you the illustration of the aerodynamic forces on a wing of an airplane that overcomes the law of gravity in order to lift a, what was it, 330-ton 777 and make it float like a feather above the, the clouds. You have a force counteracting the law of gravity, the force that counteracts the law of sin and death, which we cannot counteract uh, on our own. We need an external force. The Holy Spirit provides that through resurrection power. So there's life now, and it anticipates the ultimate. Now, he's going to get to the ultimate later in this same chapter. He's going to talk about glorification. That's basically after resurrection or the product of resurrection. 
but he's already kind of laying the groundwork. This is the ultimate deliverance. But in the meantime, there's power available to counteract the law of sin and death. So, we'll also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. Back to the indwelling, who indwells you. That's why he laid that foundation of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Residing within us is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, when I say us, those that know Jesus Christ personally. There's a resource available, and this is why why I emphasize lots of Christians don't avail themselves of that resurrection power, and they simply live in the power of the flesh. And as a result, they are not able to overcome sin in some areas. In fact, in a lot of areas, they're even totally oblivious to sin in their life. That makes sense? That's why the stress on walking, and we're going to see more of that in the next few verses, walking in the Spirit. So it's through the Spirit, and Maddie is very curious about what is this word, and she probably knows it, right? Which word? Through. You can guess, right? Yeah. Yeah? There you go. So it's translated by means of? Yep. I think it's the means or the instrumentality. The means by which God works. There's the Greek word. So the Holy Spirit is the means. It's through the Holy Spirit, through the indwelling presence that every believer has, we have access to resurrection power. So what, whatever circumstance we find ourselves, and some Christians find themselves in very dreadful places for One of the extreme cases is Stephen in the first century. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the text tells us that he's able to endure not only the persecution, but all the way to martyrdom. And the resurrection power gave him that ability. In ourselves, none of us could face that. None of us could could handle that situation. So all the way from that situation to the little irritations that we have in our experience, there's resurrection power to respond to them rightly. And this is the whole key. Very glorious passage. Very important passage in all of Scripture. So it's through the Holy Spirit. He's the means by which the Father and the Son work to sanctify us. And we already talked about the Trinitarian aspect of this passage. And we'll see it basically throughout Romans 8 as well. So just adding to our chart here, no condemnation, and there's a law of the spirit of life available. He's simply expanding that. In that, we can live in such a way that we fulfill the law. It's not by willpower, okay, I'm going to obey this, but it's through the indwelling Holy Spirit, through the resurrection power that is available Resurrection life in verse 11. Annie? So, basically how we can think of um, that law being fulfilled is like of what the Spirit of God is in us as we relate to our Savior. Yes. Um, it just, it's, it's fruit. Right. Um, like a fruit tree doesn't go out and like grain and right. strive to produce fruit. Right. 
It's just as a result. Let's the life flow. Yes. Yep. It's a result of what that fruit tree is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, that that's how we should think about the law. Yeah. You're very much like Jesus in that he had a similar analogy that you're... you're and Psalm 1, right? Yeah. Tree. Tree planted by living waters. Yeah. Right? Connected. That's that. Like, I brought up last week, and that's yeah. really product. Yes. Yeah. But it's a conscious thing. And the, the thing that we need to focus on is the mindset that he also talks about. Remember the mindset in verse 5, set your minds. So we need to renew our thinking. And that's connecting our Savior. That's right. And that's bringing to memory these times that you've spent memorizing Scripture, the times that you've spent in Bible study, the times that you've spent in reading God's Word. Now you have that resource, and you can bring that in your mind this is how I should respond in this difficult situation. So that leads us into the next paragraph, which begins in verse 12, and it runs all the way through, I think, verse 17 and 12 and 13. I see this as something of a transition. In fact, as I wrestled with it and tried to figure out, does it go with the preceding or with the latter? And if you go to the commentaries, they're divided on it, so it's not real clear. So I went and did a little study to see how does Paul transition, and I went through kind of the whole book up to this point to see if there's any clues to decide whether 12 and 13 goes with 1 through 11 or whether it goes with 12 through 17. And obviously, because I put it on the slide here, I came to the conclusion that it goes with... 12 through 17, or 14 through 17, I guess you could say. And we'll get back to this obligation thing here, 12 through 13, but let's look at the whole passage, and like we typically do, it's a long sentence, and like it's typical of Paul, kind of a lot of ins and outs here. This one isn't as complicated as some of them, but we haven't done this in a while, but let's go through our little exercise What is the main clause of this long sentence? Let me read it. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, semicolon. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the end of the sentence. And by the way, in the Greek text, it's the same breakdown. Where's our grammarian? It's not we are under obligation as Okay. That looks like a main clause. Okay, everybody agree with her? Any any dissenters? Well, you've got Maddie on your side, so you're you're a good company. Okay, there's not only the main clause, but in fact the subject and the verb. In other words, the main subject and the main verb. Subject we. By the way, he kind of transitions here. I don't know if you noticed, but he's been talking about you, 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 you. And then uh, and he adds brethren, almost bringing them in. In other words, embracing them and including himself. Maddie? So that under obligation is translated as a positional phrase here, but no. not a verb? Yeah, so the way the translation a, makes it sound, yeah. There's a positional Right. Our under obligation. Say. 
We are debtors. We are debtors. Yeah. We are debtors. Yeah. You could say that. Not a prepositional. Right. Yeah. 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 And we'll come back to the meaning and what he's getting at here. All right. So we broke it down. So everything else is going to tell us something about this obligation here. So we have subordinate clauses. We won't break them down. We'll take them in phrases that we'll take piece by piece. But let's start with the so then brethren. And I've already mentioned the brethren, Paul bringing them in and saying, you know, almost embracing them. Because this is probably the only part of this passage where we need to think in terms of doing something. Remember, we've been stressing Paul doesn't give any very many commands. In fact, all of the commands are clustered together in chapter 6. Everything else is, you should know this. Do you not know? Knowing this, here is this. Therefore, this and this. It's all, these are principles. These are all not exhortations. These are biblical truths that in chapter 6, where we have the first command, it basically calls us, reckon these things to be true. In other words, you need to believe these things because this is reality, and in believing them, now we can respond in a right way because these things are true. And that's different from chapter 7. Right here, so then. So then. Based on what we studied, what I said. Yes. This is a result, and the question is it go with what preceded? Even though it is a conclusion, if it is a conclusion, then that would help us to say, well, it probably goes with what precedes, and it seems the content seems to go with it. But I've come to a different conclusion. I think he's transitioning, and let me show you kind of why. And there's lots of other ones. I'm just going to give you a few of them. You could go all the way to 117 at the very beginning. And 117 is kind of the theme of the whole, 16 and 17, theme of the whole book. And he talks about God revealing righteousness. And then in verse 18, he starts the doctrinal section and he talks about revealing wrath. So Paul seems to transition in most of these by taking a word, uh, an idea from one section, and then he transitions into the next. And I see the, the word revealing as him kind of moving from one idea of righteousness to revealing wrath. And he's going to develop that whole theme all the way to chapter 3. Now, I don't have that on your... Is it the same as I see in my text is translated for and that's usually guard? It's guard. Yeah, it's a different word. It's a different. And and he varies the words. He varies the words. But what I noticed is more this usage of either the identical same word or the same idea that he carries from one to the next. So we have a major... The, the first example I gave you, I didn't put on the screen, but 17 to 18, a major change from the theme of the whole letter to the, the beginning of his major doctrinal section, and he transitions with the word revelation. 
3.9, he's transitioning from all guilty to all are now condemned. He's demonstrated that the whole world is guilty. That's Romans 1 from 18 to the end. And then in chapter 2, he deals more specifically, you know, we're going back years now, because we've been, it's been over two years since we were in chapter 1. He dealt with the Jewish issue in chapter 2. And by the way, there's some transitions in there that I'm not going to, I don't want to take all the time dealing with these transitions. But all guilty, he's transitioning to now our stand condemned before holy God. So he's leading. And he takes the whole book of Romans step by step by step. And he transitions from one to the next. So all are guilty. And kind of the key in there is uh, Jew and Gentile. In other words, uh, a, a double phrase that, or double word there to include all. And where am I? Verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Referring back to the Jews in verse 8. And why not say as we are, let's see, as we are slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Now he's going to move into condemnation. And he's been talking about Jew and Gentile all the way from verse 18. So in verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We have already charged that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. In other words, they're all guilty. And now he's going to move into, because of that, they're condemned. In 5, in fact, the entire 12 through 21, 5, 12 through 21, it's in the section of justification, and it's kind of his concluding paragraph on justification. But there are several themes in there that lead us to chapter 6, 7, and 8 in the sanctification. So there's several key words in there. Or under law as opposed to under grace. The, the issue of righteousness over and over in that passage as well. So we see the uh, justification and the key transition is the idea of under sin. And now he's going to talk about how do we deal with sin. Six one. he's transitioning from the old life before justification to a new life in 6.1. And in 6.1, here he has a transitional word. What shall we say? Now, he uses questions to transition as well. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And then we dealt with that last time. And the answer is absolutely not. So the key word there is sin. 6.15, slaves to sin to obedience. Transition from slaves to sin to obeying. That's also in that principle loaded book. And by the way, verse 15 is after a series of the only exhortations so far. And I'm bringing this out because we have to deal with the word obligation. 7.1, he's talking about being under law, and then he's going to move to the concept of freedom. We are no longer under law, and in this case he uses an analogy, and the key word there is basically the idea of death, the idea of death in chapter 7. And if you backtrack, you'll see, for the wages of sin is death, verse 23, and then verse 7, or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. And then he's going to talk about death as well. 
7.13, from law, in other words, you can't be sanctified by law, and I see him transitioning, you can't be sanctified by self-effort. Those are the two problems that we will face in the Christian walk. And the key transitional word in 12, 7, 12. So then the law is holy. There's not, it's nothing wrong with the law. The law is okay. And then verse 13, therefore did that which is good, referring back to the law, become a cause of death for me, may it never be. And he's transitioning now to the issue of self-effort. So I see a transition. Chapter 8 from uh, chapter 7, the frustration to victory. And here's the transitional word of therefore. But also, Jesus Christ, if you notice at the end of chapter 7, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand he summarizes, and then chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See the tying words there? And then the the passage we're in, verse 12, he just talked about the power of the Holy Spirit in verse not only 11, but all the way back to verse 9. And in verse 12, well, 11, he's also talking about the flesh, your mortal bodies, through through his Spirit who indwells your mortal bodies. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh. Doesn't use the same word, but he's using the same concept. Sinful bodies basically are flesh, but the emphasis is the power of the Holy Spirit, and now he's going to transition to sonship. And we won't get to the concept of sonship today, but we'll save it for next week. I'm just leading up into it. And there's another one at the end. He's going to transition from sonship to suffering and then glory. See that in verse 17. But let's take a look at verse 13 and see how far we can get. And the so then, and by the way, the so then, there's two Greek words there. He's used them before, and they are clearly transitional terms where he's starting a new paragraph. And that kind of was the driver for me. It's just the two words there. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. What is he talking about here? It's not a command. They're very few. It's not an exhortation. But he is implying that there is something that we need to be involved in some way. In other words, there's an obligation. Now, he's talked about, he's used this word before, referring to himself, that he's under obligation to preach the gospel. And long time ago, in the introduction in chapter 1, verse 14, Paul uh, describes himself in this way. And we said that the idea there is not that Paul feels like, oh, I've got to share the gospel. You know, I, you know, he doesn't have this legalistic attitude. It's more, I have so much that God has given me that I am compelled. I am compelled to share the gospel. I can't do anything other because of this compulsion, this inward movement that moves me. That's the idea of obligation. And I think that's the same idea that we have here. Because of the resources that that God has granted us, and not just justification, but the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, no condemnation, the law of the Spirit of life that counteracts the law of sin and death, 
because of Christ dying, that's referenced in here, because of the resurrection power that is available to us, all of that compels me now to not be obligated, if you will, or in debt. In fact, that's the idea of the word obligation, debtors. That's a good translation that Jeremy brought out. We are under obligation not to the flesh. In fact, it does everything in the opposite. It takes away, it detracts, it destroys. So we have no obligation. In fact, we have died positionally to that old nature, but it has not been eradicated. It's still there. In fact, this passage kind of emphasizes that. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, we've talked a lot about that already, all of chapter 7 and even some of chapter 8. To not to the flesh, that's the old me, the inward inclination towards sin. And we've talked about this is all that the unbeliever has. The unbeliever has only the old nature, only the flesh. That's the word Paul uses. We have an alternative, and not only an alternative, not only the new nature, but even God himself indwelling us. And from that resurrection power. All right? So not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We developed that when we talked about the mindset of the flesh. In other words, the mindset that every unbeliever has, he's concerned about meeting his needs, he's concerned about his position in society, he's concerned about material, all these things. That's according to the flesh. And then verse 13, for if, and there's a dash there because it almost seems, even in the Greek text, that Paul, as is common with him, he, he kind of has an idea here, and then now he kind of gets sidetracked, if you will, on a little rabbit trail. And all of this, he said, well, I'm talking about the flesh, I'm going to add to it. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. In other words, he's already he's already talked about it, but he can't help himself. <laughs> he's got to re-emphasize it because of the destructiveness of the flesh. But you could almost pick up at the semicolon, and that's why they give you a semicolon there. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And then you could skip. But if by the Spirit we are under obligation to put to death the deeds of the body. Does that make sense? Grammatically, at least. So he inserts kind of an expansion, and we've talked about all of that already. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. You must die. And he's talking about death in that comprehensive sense that affects the intellect, that affects the emotions, that affect uh, our relationships, that affect every aspect of who we are. We've already talked about that. Connie. Here's where the commentators get all tripped up, too, by the way. Go ahead, Connie. Well, it just almost seems like it's um, doing things, okay, um, that you're saving yourself again um, by the spirit you are putting together in this body. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's something I have to do. Yes. Um, yes. Coming out of a doing yeah. um I don't want to get that confused. Because, right. Um, it, and that's why I'm stressing it's not a command. He doesn't frame it as an exhortation. But 
there's two sides of the same coin. Sanctification involve if we do nothing, we are not sanctified. In other words, the Spirit does not force sanctification upon us. The Spirit does not force new life upon us. So there is an element in sanctification where we participate. The Holy Spirit does it, but we have to trust it. And <coughs> surrender And surrender is a good word. To me, a lot of this still is coming. There is not, There is something that we do. Yeah, it's it's a choice, and I don't see that as I don't see that as legalism or you know like like he was saying you have to just power up and do all that. I think that the power of the Spirit enables us, but to me, it 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 is a choice. I have to be involved in in this. I like Jeremy's word of of surrender because yeah, we're um, not robotic. Right, I I'm going I'm going along with the spirit or agreeing with the spirit that this is, I I want to choose life over over death. Yes, or not to let the flesh be the one that is in control, but that the spirit would be the one that's in control. And that's the balance. That's the balance, Ellen. And then the word debtors bothers me because if I'm in debt to somebody, I yeah I don't know that I kind of agree with Connie that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Throws me off because I tend to be legalistic, so I'm a good rule follower. Right. So that <laughs> makes me think, yeah, there's something I've got to do, or otherwise I'm not good enough, and I'm not. Well, it's I don't just, know, and I'm tying it back to salvation, and maybe that's where my wrong thinking. Well, no, your thinking is right, but you need to include that idea in the way that Paul uses it in chapter one when he talks about him being. And it's the same word. It's the identical same word. How is it phrased in verse 14 where he's in debt to present the gospel, basically? Mm-hmm. And he's not legalistic. It, he, it has this, he's compelled, you could even translate it, even though that's not totally an accurate translation. But that's the idea. In other words, because of all that God, and he's laid a lot of that out in terms of his life. All that Christ has done for him. And now he's compelled. Yeah, the verse you're looking at. Fourteen. It says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to wise and unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to Mm -hmm. you very well. Yeah. Same word. It's the same word. Apolitis? No, that's not it. That's that's debtor. Ophelia or something? I can't remember. Yeah. O-P-H. But it's it's not this legalistic idea, and it's not that here as well. But there is a sense in which there's something in me, in me that compels me because of this overflowing blessing that I have that moves me, and from all outward appearance, it it almost feels like I am in debt, and in fact I am. That's what grace is all about. There's no way that we can earn God's goodness, but he lavishes his grace upon us, and from that, that motivates us. That's the idea that we have here. So it's not a command. Hmm? Oh, yeah, I'm going to give you a turn. You get your turn. I'm, like, dying. You're dying. Yeah, well, I think that... You're mortifying the flesh, though. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that verse 14 sheds light on this, and, of course, context, right? Yes. Um, but he's talking about sons of God, and you're going to go into sonship. 
I think Paul is talking about a transition of identity. Yes. We have a new, new identity. I- yes. And yes. Of Very good. We are identity. Then all of that flows out of identity. Yes. So that's how you overcome the legalism. Like, oh, this feels like legalism. Yes. Yes. Because legalism is about do do do, but God is about who I've made you. Yes. You are you are you are. Therefore, this is what's going to flow out of you again. Yeah. Everybody catch that? Maddie summarizes chapter 6, 7, and 8. That's what baptism means. Baptism, baptized into Christ's death, burial, resurrection. That's our new identity. In fact, baptism means that idea of identifying or having that identity. Very good. Excellent. Okay. So if you are living according to the flesh, you must die in that comprehensive sense A lot of the commentators, not all of them, but a lot of them inject kind of eternity here. In other words, or some of them will say, well, this must be the sin unto death. In other words, if you're not, if you're living according to the flesh, God's going to just take, take you, your, your physical, your life. I think he's talking about the deadness that we've been talking about all along, the deadness of living in the flesh. It doesn't produce life. It doesn't produce anything. And it's, if our thinking is in the flesh, that's not life-giving. We need to renew our thinking such that we have these biblical principles and particularly this new identity that Maddie just identified. This is who I am. I'm different. I'm transformed. I'm, I'm changed. I have resources. I have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And from that, now I can do what I need to in this difficult choice or this difficult situation. Okay, good. But if by the Spirit, and we're going to have to talk a little bit more about that next time, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, the alternative is there's life. He's not not talking about being saved here. He's not talking about eternal life, future. He's talking about life now, in contrast to dying now. And this is the thing that we focus in on. In other words, this is the obligation or the thing that we want to give attention to. This is where choices are made, putting to death certain things. We'll have to expand that next week. One last thought here. Walking in the Spirit produces abundant life now. And that's the thrust of the passage. Somebody want to close for us? Father, we thank you again for your love for us, for instruction to us in terms of God, the effect that we go on to this Lord and walking in the road. So normally here, Cheryl and Fortier, Cheryl goes to us in health challenges, we healing. They will be healed. Your desire comes. Bruce, I'm glad he's here, but in part, and Bill said that the FCCI conference will be glory to you and um, Lord, I pray we would go over to our weekend. Amen.